0: Hey you, yes, you, thanks for tuning in to the Healthy Wild and Free podcast. My name is David Benjamin. I'm your host and the founder of HealthyWildandFree.com. If you're like me, you understand that health, the mind-body-spirit-heart connection, and living a green, eco-friendly, sustainable lifestyle are some of the most valuable and life-enhancing lessons that we can learn and pass on to our children to live happy and abundant lives. That's why this podcast was created, to help you grow in these areas. If you aren't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to healthywildandfree.com. Click the box at the top right hand corner to get a free copy of our latest ebook, and you will be subscribed to be notified about future podcasts. Thanks for subscribing and tuning in. Enjoy. Hello, podcast listeners. This is David Benjamin from healthywildandfree.com. Today we have a very special guest. She is the author of The Plan, which is a book about uh, foods and how your body reacts to them. And uh, basically, the book teaches you how to eliminate the surprising healthy foods that are making you fat and to help you lose weight fast. Her name is Lynn Janae Resitas. She has been a holistic nutritionist since 1983, studying nutritional therapy, holistic medicine, herbology, homeopathy, and shiatsu. She started working with Immune Response and Hormonal Balance 20 years ago on the West Coast and has been running health centers for the past 10 years in New York City and Westchester. Lynn Janay and her team at the Lynn Janay Plan have helped thousands of men and women find easy, effective ways to lose weight, improve health, and reverse the aging process. And I'm going to put her through on the call right now.
1: Good morning. And
0: Lynn Janay, are you there?
1: Yes, good morning. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. How are you?
1: Very good, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: I wanted to start the interview off uh, actually asking you uh, kind of how you initially got into the health industry. It's something that uh, I think people can kind of relate to uh, how you had that kind of uh, I'm interested in health and there's more to this kind of moment. So how did that kind of start for you in your life?
1: Well, I was a very sickly child and uh, I had chronic migraines and sort of mild depression and really low energy. And the summer when I was 14, I had a migraine the entire summer. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And that was it. I, You know, I'd had enough. And I started practicing yoga at the age of 11 and, you know, sort of reading about nutrition and being a vegetarian and some Some healthy alternative thoughts and uh, and I just I decided i 'm going to become a vegetarian, and I did, and I instantly felt better, my energy improved, and I felt pretty darn amazing and what I started doing uh, at the age of fifteen was actually working in some health food bakeries and restaurants, so I really got exposed to a lot of alternative holistic ideas at an early age, really just being in the forefront of uh, a really nice movement in Southern California. And Mm -hmm. I kept studying more and more, and by the time I was 18 and I moved back to New York, I started to study herbology. We actually lived down the street from a great herbal school called MetaSweet. I started uh, studying herbology and homeopathy and and was really very much into herbs and healings, but on, on a personal level. I started seeing the shiatsu therapist also at the age of 18, and I remember being really impressed because she cured or put into remission a mutual friend who had stomach cancer. And I was was just amazed and blown away that this could be done just through healing touch and some... nutritional advice so the next thing i started studying was shiatsu and i started to become immersed a little bit in chinese thought and chinese healing and i i kept my studies going and i kept studying different branches and it was always part of my life and i always worked individually with a few clients uh i moved to san francisco and i became very impressed with the movement that was going on there at that time uh, with people who had AIDS and a lot of the nutritional things that they were doing as far as acupuncture, herbs, and diet. And I started working with a lot of women uh, who weren't happy with uh, practices of general OB, so I started helping them with herbs. And, you know, it just kept building, and I kept doing research and wound up getting my degree from Clayton in holistic nutrition, and everything was going great. And I was, But I was a conventional holistic nutritionist. And it wasn't until 2007, I say two important things happened. One, I opened up my health center in Harlem, a holistic health center, and we were a multidisciplinary practice. And the second was I got a Blackberry. And everybody kind of laughs about getting (laughs) the Blackberry. But what wound up happening was going from the, uh, you see me once a month or once every couple of weeks, and you pop in, and people say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm eating healthy and I lost three pounds. I encouraged people to email me daily,
2: and Mm -hmm. people
1: started emailing me hourly. And what I started to do is I actually started to track their response to so-called healthy foods. Now, I've worked with a food-based vegetarian cleanse since my early 20s. I'm 48. And uh, that really hasn't altered that much. It was pretty much lower inflammatory foods. And we were always taught from the vegetarian standpoint that you would never introduce animal protein after having all these lovely vegetarian meals. You would want to start off with a good, strong vegetarian source of protein like black beans. Well, I started to notice, my God, every time I introduce black beans, somebody's gaining two pounds. But not only are they gaining two pounds after losing all of this weight, Whatever their health issue is, flares up as well. So if you right. had migraines, you'd have a migraine. If you have arthritis, all of a sudden you have an arthritic flare up. If you're having constipation, all of a sudden you're constipated. And none of this made sense. Black beans are healthy, right? Yeah. So I would go on to the next food. This was the whole pericone phase. Oh, salmon. Let's try salmon. Salmon's so healthy. Women over 40 need to eat salmon. Same thing. Eighty-five percent of my clients were gaining exponential weight with no change in caloric value of the day to a healthy food, and their health issues would crop up. So I started really tracking uh, the effects of healthy foods that actually seemed to uh, instigate weight gain, and cause health issues to arise, one that actually kept the healing process going, and that's how the plan came about.
0: Hmm. So it's kind of a basically analyzing the, the approach to people and their diets, and then it kind of became very micromanagement, if you will, and then you kind of stumbled upon it, if you will, was kind of by accident, then wasn't it?
1: Totally stumbled upon. It. <laughs> I was I was blown away. By the results that I was seeing, I believed this stuff was healthy all my life. How could walnuts trigger migraines and thyroid dysfunction and acid reflux and depression? I mean, it's just, it was amazing what I was seeing, but I was seeing it on such a consistent basis. That for the health of my clients and certainly for the health of my business, I would have to say, you know what, walnuts aren't so good. Let's let's wait till we, you know, we test them. If you love them, let's actually test their physiological response on you. So yes, in the beginning, it was just uh, tracking data, gathering and analyzing this data, and from that, the plan was really born. And we call it almost the Las Vegas School of of Nutrition. We have your odds mapped out for you. Right. And, and if you love something, we want you to test it, absolutely. But in yeah. the beginning, when we have all that great healing going on from that food-based cleanse, the last thing we want to introduce is something that's potentially going to knock you back to where you were in that pro-inflammatory phase. So if we keep introducing foods and you keep adding in new foods, which you need to do, but that have a lower chance of causing this inflammatory process, your body keeps healing. And that's why by day 10 or 14, we can get people off their blood pressure meds or their cholesterol drops 20 points or they're talking about cutting their antidepressants. I mean, it's exciting stuff.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Start Starting with the cleanse. So so the purpose of the cleanse is really to kind of is basically kind of neutralize the body so that it's in a state that can you can kind of determine whether there's a reaction or not. Is that the purpose of it?
1: Absolutely. Now, in the beginning, it just started off, you know, the regular, oh, we just want you to be healthy and you want to lose a few pounds, and and that's how it started. But then what we started to do is, you know, taking the information that I had gathered and what I found to actually be pretty much universally healthy foods that were Mm -hmm. low inflammatory, we found a bunch of things happened. One, your response to a food that was inflammatory was greatly amplified, So just uh, aside from the weight gain, if migraines, let's say, are your issue and you eat the salmon and you have a migraine, it's a very different concept than a nutritionist saying, don't eat that, it's not healthy for you, and it makes you gain weight. You're like, I never Mm -hmm. want to see that food again, right? Um, We also find that, and, and, and pretty much anybody involved in alternative and holistic thought will know this, is if you start with a cleansing process, the foods that used to taste great kind of don't taste so great anymore if they're not good for you. We found that uh, sodium was uh, a huge problem. Uh, The more sodium that you take in, the more sodium that you crave, so it deadens your palate. But what's really fascinating is a, a lot of research in the last 15 years has really shown that the more sodium that you take in, the more sugar and carbohydrates that you crave. So just by the simple act of those three days of resetting your palate when you go out to eat that lunch that you would normally have in your favorite takeout place and you taste it, you're like, I can't believe I used to eat this. This is so salty. And we'll literally see that in just a few days. So once again, that's not me as a nutritionist saying, don't eat that. That's high in sodium because, look, nobody likes to be told what to do. That's you saying, I don't want to eat this. It doesn't taste good. So the the cleanse has many different um, facets to it. You know, certainly as a woman you're consuming over 7,000 calories in those three days and as a man over 8,500 calories, but you're losing anywhere from 5 to 10 pounds. So another exciting aspect of this is we're kind of really shifting the paradigm away from uh, food is a calorie in, calorie out, to calories mean nothing. All that matters is the way your body metabolizes food. And you can eat a lot and be really full on a cleanse and still heal your body and lose a ton of weight. And that's a nice concept, too.
0: Yeah. It sounds uh, more enjoyable (laughs) 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 than the dreadful cleanse you see on TV and they're like, you know, malnutrition, starving looking. You're like, I don't know about that. I know, um.
1: exactly. And, yet, you know, my background was in restaurants for a long time. I opened up Balbazar and Pastis, two really famous restaurants here in New York. I really want the food to be delicious. Yeah. So it's, it's taking that I-need-to-suffer I aesthetic. Um, that's what a cleanse is, too. Wow, this is really kind of enjoyable. I'm just not eating meat and grains and dairy. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's kind of fun, too.
0: Yeah, I, it's, I think food is meant to be enjoyed, and I think that you know when we when we strip the uh, enjoyment away from food, it's like that's that's one of the great things of life, you know, different cultures, different food, and you know, getting to experience that. So um, I think that's valuable. Um, the, the I like the idea too. I mean, it really does make perfect sense. The idea of you know, quote unquote, universally healthy foods. Um, I think we've all had a scenario in our life where we're eating with family or friends, and they say, you know oh, my stomach hurts or, uh, you know, that food didn't sit good with me. And someone else in the group is completely fine, but that individual is not. Uh, so it does make perfect sense. I mean, if you really think about it, uh, what factors really kind of determine how we react to food? Like, like his blood type, hormones, like genetics, oh, great, what, what exactly? Great,
1: great question. You know, there are so many factors that go into uh, how we digest food and which foods affect us. And uh, the plan really targets people that are either in an inflammatory state or people as they age, because this is when we really start to get clear markers of whether foods do or don't work for us. Uh, what winds up happening is as we age, we lose digestive enzymes and we lose stomach acid and even saliva decreases and foods that were easier to digest, let's say in our teens, become slightly problematic in our 20s. And by the time we're in our 30s, they might be a big problem. By the time they're in our 40s and our 50s, they're causing huge GI distress. And remember that 70% of our immune system is in our gut. So whenever we're eating these foods, that are not only causing weight gain, but they're affecting our immune system. So we have the components of what's going on digestion-wise. That's part of it. I love that you asked about genetics because, yes, that's huge. I mean, it's well known that African Americans and Asians have a harder time digesting cheese. And if you're Northern European, your body has built enzymes over thousands of years to digest cow's cheese. So it's going to be easier for you. We could just use that as an example. Uh, A great example uh, that I had is, and this was in the beginning when I was still in the gathering stage, maybe. Five, six years ago I wound up getting a bunch of people in Turkey all at once so I'm like oh this is kind of interesting and cool so it's like maybe 30 40 people and uh, I'm putting in universally healthy foods according to the plan and everybody gained weight with broccoli now in most countries I work with broccoli is really pretty well tolerated so I was pretty baffled by this and one woman was smart enough to say, you know, broccoli isn't indigenous to turkey. We've only had it for 25 years or so because it's the healthy American vegetable to eat. And it just made me think, of course, you don't have the enzymes to break down broccoli. And that's why your body's recognizing it as this foreign invader, and it's causing this huge inflammatory process. Right, So what, what really happens is that our, our bodies are enzymatically programmed for certain situations and even certain countries. So we'll find that people that are first generation to the states will have a higher incidence of seasonal and environmental allergies and will have more difficulties digesting the foods here. But by the time you get to third generation, you're not going to have the same problems. So we have ways of getting around that, sort of increasing the strength of your mucosa. We, you know, use MSM and probiotics, and that's the same uh, approach that we use for healing leaky gut. But there's a thousand variables. Will people be uh, more reactive to foods during times of hormonal fluctuations? Absolutely. Do we find what we call inflammatory speed bumps? Usually 25, 35, 42, 50, and 60. You'll, you'll digest foods slightly differently, so there's a host of variables that come into play, um, and the deeper you want to get into the chemistry of it, the certainly the more fun it can be. But a lot of people break it down really simply. I ate some pork, I gained a pound, I feel creepy i'm not eating pork, you know mm-hmm. so it really it depends on on how in depth you want to go with the with the study right
0: it can it can be very simple with with the countries that's interesting because uh, you know obviously there's different foods that different countries will, you know, uh, have part of their their staple diet. So is that something that have you seen? Have you kind of seen a craving link there where, you know, for example, I'm Irish. I I have had potato cravings for potato chips. And (laughs) I don't know if that's an excuse or not, but let's just go with it. Um, (laughs) Have you seen any kind of craving link between the, the, the ancestry and the individual?
1: These are great questions. Okay, first of all, what you need to know is things like the highest incidence of fish allergies, guess where? Japan, the highest incidence of sesame allergies, the Middle East and countries with largely Middle Eastern populations like Australia and Canada. So uh, often when a food is eaten too often, it can start to cause food sensitivities or food allergies. When it comes to actual cravings, there's a couple of things that go on. A reactive food can, can actually be a food, a, a food, can, a potatoes. let's say you actually crave the potatoes. Okay, we'll just say that you crave the potatoes. But there are other factors in why you crave foods. For some people, it actually causes a mild inflammatory response, which boosts serotonin because your body's trying to protect you as it's trying to get rid of this bad guy. For other foods, uh, in some people, they can increase leptin levels, which is your hunger and your craving. Uh, if you have a problem with yeast overgrowth and you don't know it, you might be craving those, uh, those potatoes, especially as your yeast population starts to die off, right? So let's say you have some potatoes a couple of days ago, and you feed your yeast, and they're super happy, and the colony's thriving, and then 48 hours later, they start to die off. Well, guess who's craving some potatoes, so, I am. Um, and, and then potatoes might actually work for you because we find potatoes to be lower inflammatory for a lot of people. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what winds up happening is, you know, we really uh, go through all the research that's out there. And certainly there's so many wonderful things that are being researched right now. And, and we find that there's so many different schools of thought and there's so many different theories because they apply to a certain population. So, it's not a one- size fits all, but what the plan teaches you, it teaches the way your body responds. You will know whether it's yeast or leptin or serotonin by going on the plan. And then taking that information, you can make better choices. So, if it is a yeast uh, uptick and you're craving the potatoes and they don't cause uh, a physiological response that's really negative, right? doesn't doesn't cause two pound weight gain and make you sick and depressed. I would say have the potatoes and take a probiotic, you know, enjoy Right, life. yeah. But know, know your response to the foods and then make a smart choice based on that.
0: Right. How how have uh, genetically modified foods kind of played a role? Have you seen uh, m- more reactions with those?
1: Oh, oh, my goodness. Yes, 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 yes. GMO is a mess. Most farm-raised fish is really a mess. Uh, we definitely find them to be higher reactive. Um, they really just cause a lot of GI distress, and that's why we're seeing such a, a rise in food sensitivities and food allergies. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as part of a, a normal part of your diet, they're really just causing massive, massive damage. They really are. And once again, it's not something you can just... You know shove and push away you know 70% as I said of our immune system is in our digestive tract and when you're eating these foods and we're taking in these pesticides and you're having all of these you know xenoestrogens what it's causing is a nation of really sick people
0: yeah so so it's kind of the I mean genetically modified foods to some degree are, are foods that you know obviously have been genetically altered so our bodies really haven't evolved to be able to break them down and and process them properly. So it does kind of, I could see it confusing our our digestive systems. Uh, what, what is gut associated lymphatic tissue? You mentioned that in your
1: book. Yeah. You know, um, when you eat a reactive food, I think it's important to, to know, let's go through the basics. How can you gain two pounds from black beans? Right, especially if you don't change the caloric value of a date, It doesn't make sense. And how does this come on as long-term weight gain, and how does it really affect the immune system? So what I want you to understand is when you eat a food that doesn't work for you, and I'll use green beans as an example, you eat some green beans and your body goes, oh, no, bad idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have an immediate histamine response. And this histamine response is, your tissues and cells flooding with water, trying to keep this bad guy, the green beans, away from your heart and your liver and your lung. And the amount of weight that you gain, this water weight gain in response to the food, really you can use as a gauge for how toxic it is for your system. Now, water weight gain, not a big, big deal, right? You should be able to lose it the next day. But what happens when you have a histamine response is the next thing is you have a huge uptick in cortisol, That's your stress hormone. That's the adrenals pumping out this cortisol, right? Now, of course, that can cause, you know, heightened levels of of cortisol can cause long-term fat storage. So now we can start to see, oh, you know, I might start putting on weight if I haven't identified that those green beans aren't working for me. But that's just weight. We should be able to lose weight, right? What most people don't realize is that cortisol and our hormones come from the same place. So when we have heightened levels of cortisol, in men it's going to usually shunt testosterone production. And in women, it's usually going to shunt progesterone uh, production. And what winds up happening for a lot of us is we start becoming estrogen dominant. Well, what this estrogen dominance will do is one, it'll attack thyroid function, and the thyroid's responsible for every metabolic and cellular process in the body. But it also starts to skew that yeast. Remember I was talking about those yummy potatoes? Yeah. So now that those yeast are starting to overtake our GI tract, and uh, anybody that studies yeast knows that that they are just nefarious and wonderful. I'm just so amazed at how they can just infiltrate and really alter our GI tract. And when they start to skew our intestinal balance, when we're talking about galls, and we're starting to get deeper into chemistry, so don't fall asleep there, folks, Mm -hmm. what we're starting to do is release pro-inflammatory cytokines. And then this is when we start to say that uh, we're at risk for the heart disease, we're at risk for cancer. So let me break it down a little more simply. green beans again. When you're 20, there's a good chance that 100 calories of green beans is going to act like 100 calories. Calorie in, calorie out, boom. You're healthy, you're young, system's fully operational, you're invincible. When you're 25, that 100 calories of green beans might act like 150 calories. Okay, well, maybe we're having a little GI issues now, or maybe our stress response isn't good. Maybe our hormones are a little off, right? By the time you're 35, that 100 calories of green beans might now start acting like 700 to 1,000 calories. And now maybe that little gas and bloating you have is now chronic constipation. And maybe the that hormonal dysfunction that you have uh, is now uh, infertility or PCOS or something along those lines. And by the time you're 42, that 100 uh, calories of green beans can act like 3,500 calories. And by the time you're 50, it can act like 7,000 calories. Okay, well, now you have Crohn's if you had the mild digestive distress when you are in your 20s. Or maybe you have a prostate problem if you were having hormonal issues in in your 20s so what winds up happening is because aging itself is an inflammatory process and because we lose these digestive enzymes and stomach acid as we age these foods can amplify their response and if we haven't identified those green beans are the problem and we're eating them for 30 years now we're affecting our immune system
0: wow so i think
1: that's that's an easier way to understand it rather than going into the Whole chemistry which I think only geeky people like us might like
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting because it's kind of um, when you look at it and you know you kind of span it out between you know a couple decades if the problem you know you really well. first of all you compromise your gut your immune system but the problem compounds if you don't address you know the the food that is causing that issue so um, knowing what the food is and and not having it be part of your diet is obviously very important. Um, You mentioned in your book that... Yeah, and
1: I just want to go back to that because... So why healthy foods (laughs) drive me so crazy? And it's not, like I say in the book, it's not the nachos and margaritas I'm concerned about. It's not the ice cream. You're not eating that food saying, I expect to get better eating it. But you will program those green beans or that Greek yogurt or that salmon or that asparagus in. And that's where it can be such a problem. Yeah. Go ahead with your, your question.
0: But, but, well, I was just gonna say because you know it's for people that are you know health conscious, it's like, or even people that you know have weight weight issues. It's you know I'm, I'm eating healthy, and I'm, I've known a lot of people that you know are eating healthy and they're exercising, you know, quote unquote healthy, and they still have weight issues. And it's like, it's what amazing, is right? causing this? So and you know
1: what it causes is such a disconnect. Uh, between the brain well what our are, are two brains, right the brain and our cranium and the brain and, and our gut, and it really starts to make you feel like you can 't trust your body and your body 's the enemy, and that 's an awful place to be in because that's that 's my client base those These are people saying to me i eat i 'm the healthiest eater I know. How did I get breast cancer or how do I have crohns or why am I depressed i 'm doing everything right." And by the way, I'm twenty, thirty, forty, three hundred pounds
0: overweight. Yeah, it's amazing. It's uh, it's something. It's a completely different paradigm shift. I mean, just hearing this, it's like, it's like, wow, you know, it's because we kind of have this in America, at least, and I think most of the world. We have this kind of chart in our minds that you know these foods are healthy, these foods aren't. And if we're doing this, on the you know we're eating the healthy foods and doing the right things, we'll be okay. But that's obviously not the case for everyone because it's. everything's personalized, everything's customized and tailored to, um, you know, many different factors. Um, I was curious, does does blood type play a role in in the food kind of, uh, in the digestive system at all?
1: Not really so much. Um, You know, the blood type diet is, you know, most of his research was done with a small population of a couple of thousand people in uh, somewhat affluent middle-class, white uh, area. And um, so you can gather some data that way, but you're not going to get a broad spectrum of of data. And um, it's pretty exciting for us. You know, we've been, the book has sold well over 100,000 copies, which is awesome. And uh, we've been doing this for quite a while, gathering data and so uh, we find that the information that we have will sometimes match up with it, but often will not. Um, and I think because it's overly simplified and, and what's really fascinating, the the more we do this is we find that so many of the foods that work for you are actually based on your nutritional deficiencies. And the foods that tend to be the least reactive don't contain certain compounds like goitrogens and isoflavones and all that kind of stuff, but um, they're so nutrient-dense that they will work with our nutritional deficiencies. I'll use an example. We work a lot with thyroid dysfunction. And if your thyroid dysfunction is based by a lack of iodine, you're probably going to do better with cod or scallops. But there's another facet of thyroid dysfunction that is really predicated more on zinc and selenium. So if that is your case, you're going to do better with the denser animal proteins like lamb and steak. So when you eat that lamb or steak and it works for your chemistry, you're going to lose a pound. And by the tracking method that we show you for your thyroid, your thyroid function will increase a full point each time you have it like your body just sucks it up. So, um so I I think for some people it's a good starting point, but even when it comes to um nuts and seeds, it's such an individual thing and and maybe maybe it did work better 40 years ago when we didn't have so much GMO when we didn't have so much pollution when we didn't have so many, you know. It's, it's hard to is, say yeah. because mm-hmm. we've, we're just exposed to so many things and, and what I see working for people and not working for people is so highly individualized that we'll see people in the, the legume family do well with snow peas but do poorly with snap peas. And then by the time they get to green beans, it's an absolute problem. We'll see people do really well with raw almonds, but do very, very poorly with roasted almonds. Um, so it becomes, and there, and there are chemical reasons why, you know, that is. But um, I, I, it's a simplistic model that might work for some people, and if it works for you, God bless it, stay with it, because doing the plan could be a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make it any harder than it needs to be. But uh, if you're eating healthy food and it's not making sense, this is definitely the, the plan for you. And, and the weight loss is, is amazing. I mean, we have people eating 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day, and they're losing, you know, half a pound a day every single day until
2: yeah.
1: awesome. you introduce that one food that doesn't work for you. And then when you gain 1.3 pounds from strawberries you know, the strawberries aren't looking so
0: good anymore. Yeah. (laughs) The thing I like about it is that it's, I mean, for me, you know, I'm in shape and, you know, I I feel healthy. I believe I'm healthy. But for me, it's like, you know, it makes sense because I I just want to optimize my health to another level. So uh, I want to go back to the thyroid issue a little bit because uh, I live in the Midwest and in the Midwest, uh, iodine deficiencies are massive because, You know we're not we're not near the ocean. We don't have as much seafood, and you know by the time it gets here, it's you know whatever. So iodine deficiency is a huge problem in the Midwest, and you know there's for me I actually had an iodine deficiency, Uh, so I've been taking like kelp and uh, iodine and uh, algae and things like that. Um, As far as the thyroid goes, as far as the thyroid goes, uh, how does reaction foods? I mean, does it cause both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism? Or great, is question. It... great question uh
1: there are many factors first of all uh, my next book is going to be about the thyroid. I love it um you know we found that for women over the age of thirty five eighty five to ninety percent of women have thyroid dysfunction, whether it shows up on tests or not. for men uh about that age it's it's closer to thirty percent unless they're a vegetarian or an extreme athlete, and then it's higher. By the time you're in your 50s as a male, it's closer to 50%. And by the time you're in your 60s, it's 85%. It's right up there with women because glands shrink as we age. So understanding the thyroid and how it operates is key because the thyroid is the master gland. I want you to think of T3, which is one of the hormones from the thyroid. It unlocks every single cell in your body. So for you to be at 110% every day, you need T3 as the key unlocking that cell. So any sort of uh, any, anything that can interfere with thyroid function is something we really need to pay attention to because so many things are misdiagnosed when it's actually thyroid dis- dysfunction and depression is a huge one, depression and digestive disorders. So going back to your question, there are many factors that can uh, nutritional factors that affect thyroid function. Iodine is one of them. Zinc another. Vitamin A. Selenium is huge. American soils are greatly deficient in selenium. Um, iron. B twelve. Again, as a vegetarian, that would be tougher to have unless you're supplementing. So, making sure that these are in balance is huge. And yes, some people just have less of a need. For iodine than others let's say your family has been in the midwest for eight ten generations you might not have as much of a need your body might have other catalysts going to boost thyroid function but the odds right. are you do need some iodine right so taking that help mm-hmm. is pretty pretty darn smart um, and certainly fish is such a mess nowadays you know with uh, what we've really seen in the last year, because of the Japanese incident, is that we're not recommending anybody eat West Coast fish anymore. It's changed hmm. from 40% reactive to 85% reactive, probably, because of all the heavy metal contamination.
0: Wow. In what so, period of yeah. time has that, has that done oh, that?
1: It's really in the last year. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's really pretty bad. So. It's, it's a shame that we have to become these, you know, world geological experts to know what's going on with our food <laughs> yeah. sources. And we don't want to make it any more difficult than we can. Uh, we say one of our favorite products is Maine Sea Seasonings, um, which is, you know, taken off the coast of Maine. And we, we love it because you sprinkle it on just like salt. It's seaweed-based, but it tastes like salt. I mean, I put it on my 8-year-old eggs. So he doesn't even know. And uh, they regularly test their waters for 39 uh, toxins. So, because seaweed will draw seaweed and kelp will draw toxins into it, so mm-hmm. you can have all these heavily contaminated types of seaweed or kelp. That's something you need to watch out for. But thyroid dysfunction is all over the states. It absolutely is, and mm-hmm. um, and it's criminal how it's not being addressed. You know, most doctors don't want to do the full battery of tests. For it Because the more tests that they do, the less money they make from insurance carriers. So you right. have to be your own advocate. I'm actually really impressed that you knew that you had an iodine deficiency. That's pretty awesome.
0: Well, my mom is a biofeedback technician, so I'm, uh. I'm always discovering things <laughs> thanks to her. Um, but, it, yeah, it is interesting. The uh, I know the thyroid actually it, it uh, monitors body temperature, right? Yes. Yes, and, that, and that's
1: actually one of the gauges that we, we teach people. We tell people taking an axillary temp, which is a temperature under your armpit, will allow you to know your your thyroid function. And uh, we find that, you know, you know your temperature should be 98.6. And old-school naturopathic doctors would say anything below 98 means you're not functional. We, we find actually anything uh, above 97.3 means you're still operating at 110%, David, right? But once mm-hmm. it starts Got getting you. in the 97.3 and below, we start to see problems. And we've seen people at 91.
0: Wow. That's yeah. low.
1: I'm like, how are you alive? <laughs> yeah, that's
0: uh, <laughs> that's surprising. Um, and body temperature plays a role in really a lot, doesn't it? I mean, circadian rhythm, I believe, and, and other, another another sleep and uh hormonal levels and everything as well, right?
1: Absolutely, And that's why we say, you know, the thyroid is really, you just need to think of it as the gland that regulates everything. And, you know, the the thyroid only produces one teaspoon of thyroid hormone a year, which is amazing Mm. when you think about it. And it's regulating every single function in your body. So using your basal body temperature is amazing. I'll, I'll tell you a great story. I was working with this one woman, uh, she was on Wellbutrin, which you'll often find. It's an antidepressant with thyroid dysfunction. She goes on the plan for her month. She loses a bunch of weight. She goes off her antidepressants. all's great. Two months later, I get an email from her, and she's like, Lynn, I, I'm going to, getting back to that dark place. I haven't been getting out of bed the last couple of days. I'm feeling really depressed. I have no energy. Please, I don't want to go back on the antidepressants. Tell me what I should do. So I said, well, Give me an axillary temp. And she does, and it's like 94.3. I Hmm. said, well, there's a physiological reason why you have no energy and you're depressed. Your thyroid isn't functioning. It's not you. You don't need to suck it up. You're not a bad person. Your thyroid isn't working. And we had determined for her that scallops boosted her thyroid function. So instead of reaching for a cup of wellbutrin, she reached for a couple of scallops and a glass of wine to lower some cortisol levels, and boom, she's feeling better. So the plan is really about taking the data of your body and finding the stimulus that boosts it. And when you do that, you're just plugging in the variables that work for your chemistry. And that's why it's super fun, because that remember in the beginning I was talking about how there's this disconnect between your brain and your gut? Mm-hmm. We're bringing that relationship back. You're actually using your brain to analyze the data of how your body is feeling. Mm-hmm. Which Reactive, is great. Which is react, whatever stimulus it's reacting to negatively, and then you have the tools in your tool belt to plug in through food, not through supplements or medication, through food, what makes you work best.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is it's great because a lot of people don't really have that connection and, you know, they, they don't know what's causing these reactions. So if you have that brain-gut connection, uh, it allows you to make better decisions, you know, on the fly, even intuitively, um, which is very, very important, I think. Um, you mentioned in your book that that uh, reactions to food can last up to 72 hours. So you're telling yeah. me that three days yeah. of my life can be affected by one little snack.
1: Oh, yeah. And that's, that's why people can be in chronic... Pain. So you could just make three wrong choices a week and just feel constantly lousy. And that's, you know, people are coming to me and they're like, I feel crappy all the time. I'm always stressed out. I'm not sleeping. I look like a hell. You know, it's just, and this is why. This is why. It's this chronic, low grade inflammation that people are constantly experiencing. And remember the body's wouldn't the, bo- the body always wants to repair until the day you're dead. It's the most amazing amazing machine ever. It really is. But it's always going to divert energy from repi- re- repairing your heart, your liver, your lung, your thyroid, your intestines, whatever, to digestion. And that's a basic biological response. That's back from when we were cavemen and who knew when the next meal was coming in, right? So it's always doing that on a daily basis. It's always taking a little bit of energy away from repairing your internal organs to digestion. Mm-hmm. But when you throw a reactive food on top of it, depending on the level of toxicity to your body, well, now the body thinks it's under attack. Now it's taking a bunch of energy away from repairing your heart and your liver and your lung to digestion. And that's why right. you're feeling exhausted because that takes a lot of energy. Conversely, you remove that food, you're feeling like 3,000%.
0: Makes sense. It's interesting, too. It's it's really, uh, you know, adding a reactive food is really like adding fuel to the digestive fire and, you know, the inflammation um, and and the, um, you know, obviously uh, one thing that actually is kind of funny you mentioned the digestive system in relation to the heart and the other organs. The digestive system is the first organ or the first area of the body to process food, nutrients, and and to actually utilize what it needs for, you know, the heart and other organs. So uh, it makes sense to pay attention to that and use that and understand that first and foremost so that you can have a healthy heart, a healthy brain, a healthy, you know, whatever else it may be. Um, You did talk about, or excuse me, I don't, I'm not sure if you did, but uh, I was curious about uh, food combinations because this is something that, you know, we 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 combine foods all the time. Whether it's salads, whether it's smoothies, whether it's you know whatever it may be. Are there certain kind of food combinations that you found that have reactionary effects that Absolutely. are just kind of general no nos?
1: And and that's why well, there's no general no no. And that's once again that's the pain of being on the plan, um, mm-hmm. but it's also the joy of being on the plan. As we mm-hmm. say, the combination of chicken and rice is eighty percent reactive. Right? But if you're the 20% it works for, who cares? Right. right. But if you have rice for lunch and chicken for dinner, you're probably going to do okay. So, yes, we do find that there are certain food combinations that are problematic. Uh, animal protein and beans. That So chili is probably out. Um, we find that rice and most animal proteins work poorly together, with the exception, interestingly enough, of rice. So... You know sushi has it going for it on that level um we don't find you know in the traditional food combining they're like never mixed fruit and animal proteins we We don't find that to to be a problem um they there's you know in food combining series there's a whole thing about melons. We find that melons just kind of suck universally, <laughs> so I think they're just a problem period, with the exception of watermelon, which is usually pretty easily digested. Um, but when we're telling people in the beginning, after they're doing those first 20 days, then what we do is, and it's strictly guided, right? Then, we're, then we set up what, what we find to be problems. We find that having beans more than once a day will be a problem. As we said, beans and animal protein are a problem, For some people, that surf and turf combination is not going to work so well. So we say limit it to one animal protein at a meal for for best digestion. We find that if you do well with cheese, it's pretty much going to do well with anything, so thank goodness for that. Um, And then I think for a lot of the other combinations, what winds up happening with a lot of people and why things can become problematic digestion-wise is that they aren't rotating their foods enough. And... I want you to understand that every food has its health benefits and every food has its health risks. And foods contain hundreds of chemicals, and you might be sensitive to one or ten of them. So if you're eating that food on a daily basis, you're probably going to build up a food sensitivity to it. Um, so when people are saying, uh, I have a gluten sensitivity, it's, yeah, because you ate a bagel every day for ten years, you so. <laughs> know? That's tough to break down, but if you have a bagel once or twice a week Your body can assimilate the nutrients of that and break down the extra gluten that's in a bagel and you're not going to have a gluten problem Mm -hmm. Um, Another one that I like to say is spinach because spinach can be hugely problematic one It's goitrogenic, which means that it attacks thyroid function Two, it's rich in oxalic acid, which in a lot of people uh, will cause neurological problems so if you open up that bag of organic spinach, uh, and you eat it day after day because it's expensive and you don't want it to go bad, knowing that not knowing that you have a slight thyroid problem and a slight oxalic acid problem, well, guess who's going to wind up having a problem at the end of the week? You know So um, it's more the rotation of foods outside of those few food combinations that I mentioned that seem to put people in the most trouble.
0: Right. With with the uh, oxalic acid, it's funny you mentioned that. I just heard something about you know spinach and that the other day. And I heard that uh, uh, basically cooking or steaming uh, spinach is, is better for it, well, actually steaming and then removing the water to remove the oxalic acid. Have you found that cooking versus rice, do you believe or That's have seen question. that there's kind of a place?
1: This is a great question. <laughs> yes. Now, we're going to touch upon a couple of things with that. One, remember that as we age, we digestive powers decrease, right? So lightly steaming or cooking your foods very often is uh, beneficial for aiding digestion. Many of the healthy vegetables, um, the whole brassica family, spinach, these are all high in goitrogens, meaning that they attack thyroid function. In some of the vegetables, we find that cooking deactivates the goitrogen, so you're deactivating these compounds that can potentially attack thyroid function. Um, But also just, you know, for spinach, you need to cook it because if you don't, the nutrients are not bioavailable. We need to break down those cell walls a little bit, break break it down with a little heat so that you can absorb the iron. And that's one of the reasons why so many people eat spinach. Um, yes, it will deactivate oxalic acid a little bit, but I have to say, you know, I've seen people with restless leg and vulvodynia and, and a bunch of things that are sensitive to oxalic acid, and even cooking it will not be enough for them. Um, so that's, that's something to think about. But cooking can definitely uh, deactivate many problematic compounds and make certain nutrients more bioavailable that being said we we always say when possible at least have a small amount of raw vegetables with your meal or fruit or something along those lines because you do want to have those live enzymes to aid right. your own enzymes so yeah it's a combination of cooked and raw mhm
0: right. it's good to hear that cuz i think uh, you know there's a lot of people on the cook side, a lot of people on the raw side, and I think, you know, as our the human species has evolved, I think it's kind of, it seems like it would have been a combination of, of both of those, but so it, it kind of uh, makes sense and resonates, especially if you have lived in the north, and, uh, you know, a, a nice right. uh, warm cup of soup is uh, very, very nice at times,
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> which
0: is, you know, it's kind of nice to have, but uh, in your book, you talked about, you know, the thyroid, and, and you also talked about the liver a little bit, and how the liver uh, impacts uh, metabolism, hormones. Um, how does the liver impact our metabolism and and the reaction? I know the liver, I believe, has you know hundreds of functions in the body, so that's a very important uh, organ as well. So, what yeah, does the main liver canning, do in how Maintaining
1: can... liver health is beyond important. I mean, it's responsible for over 500 functions, and the one that we address the most on the plan is uh, its ability to regulate metabolism. Uh, as well as it's a hormonal control, because really just hormones are so key. So we think about hormones and cortisol as being major factors in our health and our weight, we're going to do really well. And whenever we're aiding the health of the liver, which is a master organ, you can think of it as acting as a catalyst for every function in the body. Um, And whenever it's slightly impaired, we, we start to see a lot of problems. The first of which is going to be most noticeable for people, and we're not talking to the degree, degree where it's cirrhosis or anything along those lines, is skewed hormonal balance. And remember, what does skewed hormonal balance do? Well, it affects the yeast, it affects the intestines, it affects the immune system, right? Um, so we we use really simple techniques, nothing super fancy, Lemon juice and water, that's been around forever, you know. The liver repairs at night while we're sleeping. And what we want to do first thing in the morning is do something to jumpstart liver health once it uh, sort of slows down a little bit. So that lemon juice in the water is a great, great thing to do. Uh, Dandelion tea, mild detoxification for the liver, that's great. Um, And depending on your liver health, you might want to go more hardcore. You might want to take some more herbs. You might want to take a liver detoxifier. You might want to take Sammy. You know, Sammy is one of my favorite things for aiding liver health and for maintaining proper uh, cortisol balance because it helps with the uptake of serotonin and dopamine. And uh, if we can control our stress or our reactions to stress, and and mildly aid the liver well now we've got our hormones in control and you just see you're creating a positive uh, loop health loop rather than the negative health loop that we often find ourselves in
0: right are there have you do you kind of uh, recommend a, a liver flush or anything of those means
1: you know I'm kind of lazy <laughs>
0: Well, thanks for being honest with us. Today. I think we can end the interview with that.
1: I just want to eat to feel better. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So, yes, if you are a motivated person that wants to do a liver flush, well, God bless you. That's awesome. But I just want to. First thing, I just want to eat every day, and that's what I love when people just say, "All I have to do to lose weight and feel better is eat." Now. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly we work with people that are staged for cancer and we have to do things that are uh, a little more intense than that. Yeah, absolutely. But does the average person need to do that? No. If you are going to do that, I say please be smart about it. You know, don't do it before the holiday season when uh, two weeks later you're going to be going to all the Christmas parties and drinking right?
2: Um,
1: Do it in what's recognized as a great time of year to do it. Do it in spring when all of a sudden you're getting outdoors and your lymphatic system is going and you're moving more. So um, I think the biggest mistake that people do is they go to these, and, and the liver flush is not one of the more drastic things. It's not like a 10, 20, 30 day juice cleanse or something like that. But what they do is they go to these drastic means to try and remedy Serious underlying problems in their diet or their lifestyle and then they immediately revert back to it and right. then what winds up happening is that they're actually causing more damage
0: there's more stress on the body exactly makes sense yeah and if they're reverting right back to the food that's reactionary what what good does it really do exactly Makes a lot of yeah. sense um, are, there, are there any I mean I, I personally I take uh, supplements uh, I you know diet exercise but uh, I think you know because of the depletion of minerals in the soil and all these different environmental toxins, I think supplements are, have kind of become more necessary uh, you know, in modern day living. Are there any overall kind of supplements that help reduce the reactionary effects of food and just enhance uh, health and wellness that you recommend?
1: Well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm exactly on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I believe that our diet can be nutrient-dense enough that we don't need supplements and that supplements should only be used as a catalyst, and here's why. You know, now they say that calcium causes myocardial infarctions, and a multivitamin can lessen a woman's lifespan by five years, and vitamin E can now cause heart disease. You know, these are Mm -hmm. not why we're taking supplements. Um, Now, when I get sick, do I take zinc? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll pop the zinc for a day or two and put it right back in the fridge, and it works the way I need it to. It's it's that temporary boost that I need to get my body's system functioning on its own. That being said, there are certain things that we think are really integral um, to part of the healing process. And uh, Sammy, which I mentioned uh, earlier, um helps to reduce cortisol, aids liver function, and because we see that stress is such a part of modern life um, and stress causes so many diseases and so many hormonal issues, um, as well as, as, of course, emotional issues, that using SAMe on a on a regular basis, uh, on a systematic basis, is, is a good thing to do. So our joke at the offices is Mondays kind of suck, Right? We're slammed with work. Everybody in the office takes Sammy. Tuesday it's back in the fridge, right? Because that's how quickly it will work in, the, in boosting the uptake of serotonin and dopamine. MSM, which is sulfur, uh, we love because we found that the six-week round of, of taking MSM or sulfur will strengthen all mucosa. And that's anything from your sinuses to your esophagus to your lungs to your intestines. And if we decrease mucosal permeability, you know, strengthening digestion, strengthening lung function, um, that you can digest foods better and they, that will mitigate the inflammatory reactions from them. Probiotics on an as-needed basis. I don't want you taking them daily. I want you taking all, all of a sudden. I'm going to test, you know, the asparagus. Oh, my God, I look like I'm 10 months pregnant. Okay, I'm going to take a probiotic. But... I feel like taking the same things all the time sort of slows down the body's own pathways to healing. Um, right,
0: because and like even food. if you're
1: gonna if you're gonna take them, then make sure to rotate them.
0: Right, right. So, so we'll say we'll tell, we'll tell people, yeah, cleanse
1: the liver all year, but mm-hmm. you know, for two months, just make it lemon juice and water, and then for two months, make it dandelion tea, and then for two months, maybe you know, take milk thistle and keep rotating it so that your body won't react to the potentially negative uh components. Mhm.
0: I think the supplement world is kind of like the the di- you know the diet world to some degree you have your incomplete supplements and and that will cause obviously issues because like magnesium and calcium, you know there needs to be right. a balance. If you're just taking a bunch of calcium, you know you could cause calcification or you know whatever it may be, so it kind of makes sense to really research your supplements and really know and understand what you're doing. Uh, otherwise, it, it obviously can it pose problems just like diet can or the, the wrong reaction foods can. Uh, you mentioned in your book that you're, you're not a fan of stevia or stevia, however it's – whoever pronounces it whatever way. I was curious. Yeah. Why is that?
1: You know, and that's, that's where we start to – people are just like, how can you say that's not great? <laughs> the same way we don't recommend cooking with coconut oil. People were like, that's supposed to be the best. And I thought so, too, <laughs> until we tested people and we found that it caused, uh, in many of our clients, mild stabilization. So remember, we're, we're actively testing people and, and tracking their data and their responses to whatever they're ingesting. And we found that on the days that people use stevia, that they would stabilize instead of lose half a pound, which means that they're really having a half a pound reaction to the stevia. Now, most of it is uh, in the uh, powdered form. We haven't done that much research on people actually using the leaves or the liquid extract. Perhaps that's, um, that's not as problematic. But a lot of times when you do any sort of processing, uh, you start to alter things in a way that the body doesn't do well with. And I'll use the example of rice. Everybody does pretty darn well on rice. Even type 1 and type 2 diabetics, they just have to know to factor it in. Um, but when you get to rice crackers, the process of altering the rice to the rice flour now makes this a, a much more reactive component. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, you know, there's that to be taken into account. But, yeah, stevia is one that's a big shocker, um, where people are like, oh, agave, it's just like high-fructose corn syrup. We find people do really really well on it
0: Um,
1: it might be because remember the plan is super high calorie right Mm -hmm. if you're if you're on a normal diet and you're subsisting off of 1200 calories a day you you kind of have to watch where your sugars coming from right because Mm -hmm. sugar is going to be a larger proportion of your diet so it might have more of an effect but if you're eating 2,600 calories a day and you're having the same amount of sugars, it's going to have less of effect. So we find agave does beautifully. And, and coconut oil is another one. And I think it was about three, four years ago I had everybody sauteing in coconut oil. Oh, it does this, it does this. And I'm like, wow, 15% of our people are stabilizing instead of losing weight. guess that will have to be a test.
0: Hmm. So. so what about uh, coconut oil raw, just not not cooking? Is that Have you found that to be okay?
1: You know, we haven't done enough research on that. We've seen topical applications of it work really well. Um, mm-hmm. But we haven't just, you know, consuming it raw and not cooking it, we haven't done enough research in that. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I would have
1: mm-hmm. no data. But certainly if you do something, I'd love to hear it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, um, I lived in Costa Rica last year, so all the tropical foods um, I love, and you know, just it makes life more tropical. Who doesn't like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I really, I really appreciate your time on this interview. Uh, is there any uh, ending words or uh, anything you'd like to share with the audience before you go?
1: Just trust your gut. You know, you trust should trust your gut. You trust your gut. You should feel good after every meal. If you mm-hmm. do that, that sounds like a book you title. Hit, you're going to be fun. <laughs> Trust
0: your gut. I like it. Awesome. And where, where can our listeners find you? What's your website?
1: Oh, it's it's my name, www.lynjene.com. That's L-Y-N-G-E-N-E-T.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Have an awesome rest of today.
1: My pleasure. It was great talking to you.
0: Take care. Bye. Bye. And we will wrap the show with that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. If you haven't already done so, go to iTunes and search Healthy, Wild, and Free. And once you find the podcast in Healthy, Wild, and Free, just click the subscribe button. And when you do that, you can listen to the podcast on your smartphone, on your iPod, when you're jogging, when you're running. Whatever you're doing, uh, you can basically listen to the podcast on the go. So we're going to interview experts on Diet, nutrition, health, fitness, spirituality, mind-body-spirit connection, green living, and a a lot of great uh, topics in the future. So make sure to subscribe in iTunes. And if you could, while you are in iTunes, please leave a review for the podcast. It takes all but two minutes. Just click the Ratings and Reviews tab and uh, leave a few words and let me know uh, what you think of the podcast and just share your experience. I'd love to hear your feedback and uh, tailor the podcast to you and your likings and interview experts that are going to help you in your health and wellness. So thanks a lot for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye.